Let's begin reading in verse number 1 of 1 Peter chapter number 1. The Word of God says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace unto you and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto the praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen ye love, in whom though now ye see him not, yet believing ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for the preciousness, the preservedness, the uh, bountiful truth in your word. We pray that you would apply it to our hearts and lives, that you'd open our eyes to the truth of it, Lord, that we might know more of you and that you might gain more of us. Father, we love you. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Now, if you look at your notes, we've sort of uh, broken these up in a few different thoughts, four different main points, one of which is an introduction. But, you know, the book of 1 Peter is, in some ways, a sublimely personal book of the Bible. Peter writes in a way that is uh, quite different from the way Paul would write his epistles. You know, some of Paul's epistles, he was writing more than one, First and Second Corinthians, First and Second Thessalonians, writing more than one letter uh, to a church, or as in the case of First and Second Timothy, writing more, more than one letter to an individual. But Peter gives us only two books in the Bible, two letters, written to a very distinct group of people whom he describes as scattered strangers throughout the world. Not a lot has been heard from Peter in the last uh, probably 20 or so years when this letter is written. He sort of fell off the face of the earth, it seems. But he turns up in Babylon, and uh, he describes, he mentions the name of a fellow by the name of Silvanus. We believe that that was probably Silas, who has found his way to Peter, has tracked Peter down, and is giving him a report of the work that God has been doing uh, through these Gentile churches. And by the way, they were Gentile churches. We identify this as a Hebrew Christian epistle, and it certainly is in its themes, and uh, to some degree in its audience, insomuch that all of these churches uh, were populated by not only Gentiles, but uh, converted, regenerated, born-again Jews as well. Uh, but when he writes to these areas, these are not Jewish areas he's writing to, but he is writing to a mixed group of both Gentiles and Jews about the work that God has done in their life, and particularly about the suffering that they were experiencing and the hope that would see them through the suffering that they were going through. You know, let me just say this before we say anything about the Word of God, that as we read the Word of God, we so often compartmentalize our experiences away from what the people in the New Testament experience and in the Old Testament as well, and we see them as distant and far off and removed. If you were to look at the context of what's taking place at the time of Peter writing this epistle, Rome under Nero is persecuting Christians at a rate that the world has never seen, never known. He's persecuting Christians in a way 
that really, I mean, it would it would be horrific if we were to be able to go to that place and see the the crucifixions and the uh, you know the sport with animals and things that were taking place. And these believers were under that very real threat of persecution. Now, let's fast forward a little bit to the day that we live in. I'm keenly aware of two truths. One is this, that we do not suffer the way that they suffered. We don't, we're not under the threat that they're under. But the second truth is this, it's getting worse by the moment. I am a pre-tribulationist. I believe that the Lord Jesus will return before the tribulation. But it would behoove us to recognize that there is very likely to be much persecution before the rapture and the tribulation ever take place and set in. We do not know how bad things are going to get before that happens. And I'm not trying to intermingle any of the prophetic uh, statements of revelation with this current dispensation of grace. I'm not trying to do that. I believe they are very clearly and scripturally separate. I believe that uh, once the trumpet sounds, I believe the church is out. I believe the tribulation sets in. I believe that the tribulation is a distinctly Jewish event. It is the time of Jacob's sorrow. It is the desolation of the abomination of desolations that was spoken of in the prophet Daniel. It is the final week that is appointed unto uh, the Jews, unto God's people Israel. And so I'm not trying to intermingle those things, but I, I do think we sort of have this idea like we're just going to have good meeting and shout it out and everybody's going to love us and uh, you know, Christianity is just going to be the dominant thing all the way up until the rapture happens, then the rapture happens, then it gets bad. Well, the reality is we're beginning to see persecution at an unprecedented rate for this country for Christians. Now, there's been other people groups that have been uh, oppressed and persecuted worse than what Christians are now, but there has never been a time when our country has been as openly hostile towards Christianity as it is this very day that you and I sit here in this gymnasium Christianity is disdained and, and hated more today in America than it ever has been in the history of America. And as such, I think it would behoove us to uh, prepare and to gird our loins and to consider some things that we may have to endure and experience as this age of grace winds to a close. Peter begins with his name. It's interesting that he should do that. That is not always the case in New Testament epistles, but certainly this name carried with it a lot of weight. I want you to notice his introduction in the first two verses. And the first thing we notice is his autograph. He says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. As he denotes who he is, that name Peter really needs no introduction to the New Testament church. For they, they had heard all of the stories. I do not know at the time of the writing of, of Peter's letter, uh, most likely the uh, at least the uh, three later Gospels had not yet been written. Maybe Mark's Gospel had. No doubt he had gotten a lot of his information from Peter when uh, God inspired uh, Mark to write down uh, his Gospel account. But just merely by virtue of Peter's presence in the early church, the church would have known who Peter was. That name would have carried a lot of weight and impact. They knew him as one of the original 12 disciples, 12 apostles. They knew him as the man that had suffered, that had been in prison uh, for the testimony of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. They knew him as the man who under lock and key from Herod had been rescued by an angel of God from heaven and had been led outside of the gates of the city. They knew him as the gruff fisherman that had sworn his undying allegiance and yet through the feebleness of his flesh had denied the Lord. They knew him as the man that had stood up on Pentecost and preached on that day and declared the blessed truth of Christ's resurrection. They knew him as the man that had been a pillar 
of that work in Jerusalem before that body of believers was scattered through what historians call the diaspora. When he said Peter, they knew who he was. And one of the beautiful things about the Word of God is that the Word of God, when it gives human history, human narratives, human character, it gives them warts and all. You know, I mean, it does not, doesn't hide the mistakes and flaws and failures of uh, the people that are included within the pages of Scripture narrative. And certainly, Peter is a human being. But certainly, we must acknowledge, and they would have acknowledged, that this is a man with deep and profound experience in his walk with the Lord. He mentions his name. We see his autograph. We see his authority. He says he's an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, the word apostle literally means a messenger. Uh, but we understand that in the New Testament church, it took on a different connotation. It, it was a specific office of only a select uh, group of men, and there were qualifications for that. You hear a lot of these guys, a lot of time you turn on TV, you can find an apostle anywhere. Somebody say amen to that, you know. Old apostle so-and-so, this guy and that guy. Well, the reality is to be an apostle of Jesus Christ, you had to be able to give eyewitness testimony both to the life, the death, and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. We know that Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. We do not know much of Paul's history before his conversion on the road to uh, to uh, Damascus, on the road uh, that was straight. But we do understand that it, it, the timeline would have lined up for him to have been exposed to the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ. He would have been a young man at that time. But if you lived in Jerusalem, and if you were as touching the law a Pharisee like Paul was, no doubt he had been exposed to the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ. He may have been part of that busy group of people that were close by the cross on that day, and I would venture to say that he was just by the fact that he's called an apostle. And we know that he witnessed the resurrected Savior. Now, he did not witness him in a way that the other apostles had, but he witnessed him as one born out of due time. And uh, on the road to Damascus, the resurrected and ascended Lord appeared to him in a way unique to any other human experience. And so Paul had every right to be called an apostle. The story of Peter is maybe not quite so dramatic. The Lord found him as a fisherman having a lucrative fishing business there in Galilee uh, by the seashore and had called him away from that. He had been led to Christ by his brother Andrew. And uh, we understand that his relationship with Jesus had began even before his calling into the ministry, uh, because before he was ever called to be an apostle, Jesus had had healed his mother-in-law. You know, I, I've heard preachers talk about the difference in the way we do evangelism today versus how Jesus did evangelism. And, uh, you know, a lot of times we really try to, you know, sugar everything up, and we try to make it appear as though once someone gets saved, they'll never have any problems. And I've heard preachers say that, you know, Christ's method was exactly opposite that. He'd tell them how difficult it was to be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. By doing so, he certainly separated a lot of the wheat from the chaff. And that was Peter's experience, because if there was ever anything that could turn you off of a certain religion, it would be that they helped your mother-in-law when she was on her sickbed. Somebody say amen to that. So Peter's relationship predated this uh, this calling into the ministry, but the Lord had called him into the ministry, and a storied history was behind it. But it is not those things necessarily that Peter points to. Rather, he points to the fact that he has been chosen and commissioned of God to be an apostle and a pillar of the New Testament church. In other words, he doesn't point to his time before the cross necessarily, but he points to being part of that group whom from the upper room Christ had sent forth and had declared that they were to preach the gospel uh, to every creature and that he had been commissioned and used in that New Testament church. You say, why does that mean anything, preacher? Well, it means something for this reason. Peter does not point to anything that was natural to give any authority to his message but rather he points to the working and the things that God has done in his life. 
I'll tell you this, you couldn't be a New Testament apostle without Jesus Christ. To be a New Testament apostle at that time, by the way, I do believe that the uh, office of an apostle, I believe it died with the apostles. Amen? I don't believe there are, are apostles in, in the church today. Uh, I believe that office died with them, for none of us have uh, visibly, physically seen the risen Lord, nor were we there in his earthly ministry. Uh, we've not known him according to the flesh in the way that Paul described it. But he doesn't point to any of those things. And, you know, to be an apostle, you certainly couldn't be an apostle without the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ in your life. And ought to tell us something, which is this, that you and I, if we're anything, we're only what we are by the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul said uh, that, you know, that uh, the grace of God was bestowed upon him, and he labored more abundantly than they all. And he said, by the grace of God, I am what I am. You thought Popeye said that, but you need to read your Bible. That was the Apostle Paul, I am what I am. By the grace of God. We see his authority. I want you to notice his audience that he describes. I won't say a whole lot about it, because mainly because if you say much, you've got to say too much. Uh, we take too much time. But he says Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. These are all uh, cities in Asia Minor. These are all cities where Paul had ministered. These are all cities where, besides Galatia, we have no reason to believe that Peter ever necessarily had contact with them, although it's possible that he did. But the reason he's writing to them is not because of those geographical names, but rather what he says before it. He says, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. When he describes them as scattered strangers, he's denoting two things. When that word stranger is used, it has the connotation of someone that is a pilgrim or a sojourner. Now, these are people that are experiencing persecution. And so it behooves them to remember that, after all, this world is not their home, and they should not expect a warm welcome in this world. I don't know when it became a theme in New Testament Christianity that we ought to be comfortable in the world. For certainly that is not the pattern that is set down in the ministry of the Lord Jesus or in the New Testament book of Acts or in the rest of the New Testament writings. We find that always those that have been called out of this world, though they are in this world, they've called to be, they've been called to be different from this world and to be separate from this world and to be a, a, a peculiar and a separated group of people. He describes them as being scattered. Uh, boy, you know, as time goes on, it, it feels like the church gets more and more scattered. Uh, there was a time when you'd go up and down the street and you'd knock on doors, and man, everybody you found was saved, and people still say that today, I'm aware of that, but I mean, it seemed like you didn't have to look far to find somebody that knew God and loved God. But more and more, there's a sense of isolation that is creeping in around the New Testament church. Part of that is probably our fault. We need to do a better job of reaching those that are without Christ. But part of it, no doubt, is the fact that uh, evil men and seducers are waxing worse and worse. And so you say, why do you say that, preacher? I say that because I want you to understand that though you may read this book of First and Second Peter and think, well, that's so far from where I'm at, it may not be as far as you think. If you love God and if you're determined to stand and to serve God in this wicked day that we live in, this may not be very far off. Now, I'm telling you right now, Christians are being targeted in this country. They're being picked out in this country. They're being persecuted in this country. I'm thankful that we live in the Bible, in the buckle of the Bible belt. But let me tell you, the way it is right here is not the way it is all over this country. And there are plenty of places where you bring a, uh, a tone of rebuke and reproach upon you by naming the name of Christ. I want you to notice Peter's acknowledgement that he gives. Look at the next phrase, verse number two. He says this, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling the blood of Jesus Christ, grace unto you and peace be multiplied. When he describes these scattered strangers, 
It is not anything intrinsic in of themselves that is spectacular or that has set them apart, but rather it is the operation of salvation that has taken place in their life. Now, there's a couple of, uh, they're not tricky words, they're the exact words that ought to rest on this page of Holy Scripture. But there are a couple of words that people are uncomfortable with that I don't think we ought to be uncomfortable with, and it's the two words elect and foreknowledge. Part of the reason we struggle with those is because they've not been biblically defined to us. What is an elect group of people? It is a chosen or choice group of people. Uh, of course, the elect people in the Word of God all through the Old Testament dispensation is the people of Israel. They are still the elect of God, meaning that God has chosen them, but also that they are a choice group of people and that they have been set aside and set apart for a distinct purpose. Now, when we describe that, that's no no strange thing to us as relating to believers. Uh, I understand that I chose God, and His choice of me did not overturn my choice of him, but nor did my choice of him predate his choice of me. But we do not uh, stumble at all with the notion that we are a chosen, choice, elect, different, separate group of people. Now, when we start to use a word like elect, it starts to scare people, and I understand why. Let me just, can I make a statement that might just help some of y'all catch your breath for a second? I, I am in no way a Calvinist. I, I do not have a Calvinist bone in my body. If you do, I, you know, God will forgive you that, but I'm not. Uh, I don't believe that I that anybody is predestined to heaven. I don't believe anybody is predestined to hell. Nor does the Word of God teach that anybody is predestined to heaven or predestined to hell. But it does not change the fact that when a person accepts Jesus Christ as their Savior, they're now part of a special group of people. We are a different group of people. We are a chosen or choice group of people. And certainly you'll never convince me that uh, God was unaware that we would choose him. And, you know, if you want to talk about the chicken and the egg and, and all that nonsense, you go ahead and talk about it. But I just believe that God knew exactly what was going to happen before it ever happened. And that's the second word, foreknowledge. Now, here's the problem. The Calvinists would have us to believe that foreknowledge and predestination are the same thing. But Scripture nowhere says that or teaches that. When we talk about foreknowledge, there's another theological term that you might be more comfortable with, and it's the term prescience. We talk about God's omniscience, that he knows everything. If you talk about prescience, what we're saying is he knew everything before anything ever happened. When we talk about foreknowledge or knowledge of something, we're talking about an established fact and the awareness of the existence of it. You know, a lot of us, we have foreknowledge about things because Scripture allows us to have foreknowledge about certain things. We understand that the nation of Israel uh, will exist at the time of the tribulation, for instance. Just I'm pulling something out of the air, but that's one example. We understand that a man of sin will rise, the Antichrist. But I don't know about you, I don't have any choice in those things, but I am well aware that those things are going to happen. I have a foreknowledge about those things. Well, God's foreknowledge, of course, is unlimited. Uh, God knew who would choose him, knows who will and who will not choose him. He does not have to trample on our free will and volition to know that. But by the same token, if he did not know that, he wouldn't be God in the first place, would he? Of course he knew that on December 1st, 1997, as a 10-year-old boy, I was going to call upon Jesus Christ. But when that choice was made, it was my choice to make. He did not force me to make that choice. I could still to this day be lost in my sins if I had chosen to remain in that state. I chose him. But it does not change the fact that he knew that was going to happen. He knows all things. That ought to be a great comfort for us. Here's why. When we talk about those two words and those two ideas, you know, we want to fuss and bicker and have theological arguments, but why don't you just sit back and drink in the blessed assurance of that truth? That there's nothing that will ever happen but what God already knows about it. 
there's people in this room, no doubt, that are facing things. You know, I mean, we, we've got we've got our fair share of demographic of older people, and I'll let you decide who's old and who's not. But when you've got that demographic of older people, there's always tests being run and hospital visits and and things. And you know, they like to keep you waiting, don't they? I mean, isn't it funny? They want to say, if something's wrong, I'll call you. What a terrible way, uh, you know, it is to do somebody. If something's wrong, I'll call you. That way you sit around for three weeks just watching the phone, waiting for it to ring. But, uh, you know, you're always waiting on something to come up, waiting to find out about something. Isn't it good to know that God's never waiting to find out about something? He always knows what's about to happen. So it's no struggle to understand these things if we scripturally define them. And then he, he gives, I don't want to say a nod, that sounds irreverent, but he makes mention of the Trinity and the function of the Trinity in salvation as well as the entire plan of redemption. He says, elect how? According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Uh, one commentator said it this way, said that the Father thought it, said that the Spirit wrought it, and said that the Son bought it. In other words, all three persons of the Trinity had a hand and a part in our salvation. God certainly knew that, and it was from His infinite wisdom that the Lamb was slain from the foundation of the world. Certainly, I never knew I was lost till the Spirit of God made me aware that I was lost. He wrought that work of salvation in me. It was according to the sanctification of the Spirit. I have been set aside and separated and cleansed by the Holy Ghost when He saved me and birthed me into the family of God. And then there's this phrase, the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, I wish I had more time to deal with that than I do, but suffice it to say that the two times the sprinkling of the blood are denoted in the book of Hebrews and also here, at least in the New Testament, they have the idea of cleansing and of purging as opposed to the idea of purchasing at a redeeming price. And when they are mentioned, it's not to the exclusion of the fact that Christ has redeemed us, but it is rather to reveal to us or to emphasize another facet of that work of redemption that took place. I understand I'm bought by the blood of Christ. I understand I'm washed in the blood of Christ. But I also understand as a stranger, you know, that's what he called them, strangers that are scattered, as a stranger, as a pilgrim, as a sojourner, as a different elect, chosen and choice group of people that we also, as the high priest was in the book of Leviticus, he was cleansed through the sprinkling of the blood of the sacrifice. So you and I, our consciences have been cleansed and purged from dead works. We're not having to retread that old ground. We're not having to worry about our old past. We have been cleansed from those things that we might walk in the high-minded holiness that the Lord would have us to live in of having our affection set on heavenly things. We see his acknowledgement. Notice finally his assurance, and I won't say a lot about this, but he says this, grace unto you and peace be multiplied. Now, there's two things we might say about it. One is this. This is a standard greeting in New Testament epistles. Grace was typically the greeting to the Gentiles, and peace was typically the greeting to the Jews. In fact, a lot of Orthodox Jews or, or ethnic Jews, however you want to describe it, still use this term today. When they'll see one another, they'll say shalom. And uh, that's uh, a Hebrew variant of the of the word for peace. It literally means peace be unto you. But he's addressing both Gentile and Jew by giving this greeting. But I think with that, with that being a standard greeting, we also have allowed it to be robbed of the precious truth. I mean, again, this, these are persecuted people. And Peter is reminding them that even in the midst of, of rocky and dark times of an uncertain future, that the grace of God that has bought them and brought them so far, and the peace of God that abides in the Prince of Peace and the Son of Peace, that that peace and grace is still present in their lives. 
And sometimes when things go sideways, we, we start wondering where God's at. God's right where he's always been. Just because you've turned sideways, that don't mean God has. God's exactly where he's always been. So we see his introduction in the first two verses. Then he says a word about salvation. Now, when he talks about it, it's it's not necessarily just, well, here's how salvation happens. You know, Christ died uh, a substitutionary, vicarious death on our behalf and paid for the penalty of the law and the punishment of sin and paid our sin debt. Certainly all those things are involved and we might say implied. But rather what he is talking about is the impact of their salvation on their present persecuted state and situation. And he speaks first off about an expectant hope that salvation has brought them. It says in verse number 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away reserved in heaven for you. We have the first appearance of sort of Peter's key word, which is the word hope. Now, hope has become sort of an anemic word in these days that we live in because it implies doubt. Uh, you know, someone might say, well, you know, the, the I wonder if that microphone's going to make that horrible noise that makes my ears bleed again. And somebody might say, well, I hope not. Yeah, <laughs> I hope not. You might say, boy, it's raining out here. You know, I wonder if we'll make it home all right. Well, I hope so. But the word hope in Scripture is is pregnant with confidence and boldness and assuredness for the thing in which it is hope. When Peter says hope, he's not saying, well, I guess so, or maybe so, or I'd like to think so. But rather he is speaking of the powerful impact that the expectancy a believer has in the fulfillment of the promises of God has in his life. We might say this, that uh, faith, hope, and, and charity is what the Bible talks about, love, in 1 Corinthians uh, 13. And as we speak of those three things, we might say this, that, uh, that when we talk about faith, it deals with our actions. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. Uh, when we talk about uh, hope, we might say that it deals with our attitude towards the experiences of life. And, of course, when we speak about love or charity, we're speaking about our affection Towards things, If faith deals with our actions, and it does, I mean, I, I understand there's a difference between faith and works, but I understand faith without works is dead. I understand that a true biblical faith will work. It's not it's faith and works. It's a faith that works. Somebody say amen to that. But, uh, but I understand that, that faith and works are two different things, but they're always connected together. It has to do with the action that we take in, as a result of the hope. But the hope deals with the expectancy of the soul that we have in accordance with the promises of God. And he speaks of an expectant hope that you and I have. You know, sometimes it can, trying to, I'm trying to say this just right. I probably never get it said just right, not till we're on the other side of glory. But, I, you know, I, I think sometimes that when we talk about the promises of God, the truths of the Word of God, sometimes they just become distant, faraway things. You know, the kind of things you cross-stitch onto a pillow or a wall hanging, the kind of thing you print on a nice bookmarker card. But we allow them to be robbed of the life-changing impact that they have. When Paul talks about it, he doesn't talk about a lovely hope. He talks about a lively hope. He describes the impact that the promises of God have in our life. Now, let me tell you something, friend. Either God is true or he's not. I'd say this, yea, let God be true and every man a liar. Amen? 
Either God means what he says or he didn't. That's one of the struggles that I have with a lot of times people's approach to the word of God. Well, we don't really know if we have it or don't have it, and this one's good, but that one's better, this, that, or the other. I just tend to believe that God meant what he said, said what he meant, and when he said he preserved his word, he's preserved his word. One preacher said it this way, and I'm, and we'll talk about the Bible as we get a little further down in it, but said it this way. He said, if I, if I can green beans one month and open them up six later and they're, uh, six months later and they're potatoes, I did something wrong. Amen. It's either preserved or it ain't preserved. I mean, it's one or the other. And if God meant what he said and said what he meant, then these promises should have an impact in our life. They should change the way that we live. He says we have an expectant hope, I like this, of a triumphant exit from the grave. What does this hope do in our lives and what is its hope of? It's a hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We noted the uh, other day, or I, I guess I did yesterday in the preaching, uh, and uh, the, one of the evangelists mentioned it last week, that the Greek word that's used when it talks about Christ being the firstborn among the dead, uh, it's the word from which we get the, the word prototype. And it's the idea that Christ, when he rose from the dead, you know, everybody else that ever rose from the dead, they rose to die again. But Christ, when he rose from the dead, he rose to die no more. And his resurrection is the prototype for our resurrection. Now, again, you say, well, that's good, preacher. That don't mean much to me. Well, if you were awaiting Nero's chopping block, it might mean something to you. Certainly in this day that we live in, whether we should uh, meet the grave through old age or through sickness, or should things turn ugly enough that we'd meet it at a martyr's death, we have a lively hope of the resurrection of the dead, and that hope is secured by the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice the source of this resurrection, by His resurrection. I know I'm going to raise from the dead because He rose from the dead. We're coming up on Easter here in a couple weeks, and no doubt, God always seems to give me liberty. I mean, he don't never give me a Groundhog Day message, but he always seems to give me an Easter message. And that's fine with me. I don't want to preach on Groundhogs anyway. But uh, as we're coming up on Easter, very soon we'll be talking about the resurrection of the dead. And Paul makes no bones about the importance of that vital, fundamental doctrine and truth in 1 Corinthians 15. I would say this, that what what... The return of the Lord Jesus Christ is to us today. I'm just talking culturally. The emphasis that we place on the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, the New Testament church placed on the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the the great thing they had a problem. Nobody had a problem with the fact that Jesus died. It was absolute, substantiated historical fact, more so probably to that generation than it is even our generation. I mean, you understand when they would preach about Christ, that, I mean, it, they weren't preaching about a storybook character like so many preachers are when they talk about him. They were preaching about a real historical figure. We understand we ought to have that same attitude. He absolutely uh, did literally walk this earth. But it was so much more apparent to them at that time because many of the people they preached to, they had seen him walk the earth. They had seen him heal. They had seen him feed multitudes. And so the great thing in question was never really for them the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, but it was always the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's part of the reason in the Acts of the Apostles that over and over again you'll find that it's the recurring theme and central truth that they are conveying over and over again, that Christ not only died, but that uh, that the Lord did not suffer His Holy One to see corruption. He did not leave His soul in hell. He raised Him from the dead, and that we are eyewitnesses to this truth. And Peter's going to talk about it here in a little while. He said that we're eyewitnesses to His majesty. We've seen Him both transfigured and we've seen Him resurrected. We know that He is alive. And let me tell you something today, in this day that we live, 
men. They may burn us at the stake. They may take our heads off. They may take every penny that we've got. But no matter what they do to this tabernacle, there's another tabernacle prepared for us. This vile body may be laid low through a martyr's death, but there is a glorious body that we're going to be given on the other side of the resurrection. We see uh, in this passage the source of this expectation, but we see the security of it. Uh, we know the very fact that, that the Spirit of God indwells us, that there is a New Testament church. We know that these are all, all proofs of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as such, and His resurrection is the vouchsafe of our resurrection, we know one of the reasons I know I'm going to be resurrected is because there's a Bible. Amen? Because there's a Spirit of God that convicts and works and deals in hearts and lives that vouchsafes my Resurrection. I, I might say this, that uh, the Bible says that uh, the worlds were created uh, by the Word of God. Uh, the very fact that the, the grass is green, and it's starting to green up more and more, amen, but the very fact that the grass is green, the sky is blue, that up is up, that down is down, these are all vouchsafes to me that one of these days this body, this corruptible, will put on incorruption, and this mortal will put on immortality. He says we have an expectant hope of a triumphant exit from the grave. But then I want you to notice in verse number 4, he says we have an expectant hope of a triumphant entrance into glory. He says that revelations have been made to us in verse number 4, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away. We understand that the other side of the grave is far better for us than this side of the grave. It always fails us to do too much describing about heaven because we always come short of it. Because eye hath not seen, nor ear heard, neither uh, hath it entered into the hearts of men the things that God hath prepared for them that love Him. No matter what we do in describing heaven, we will always fall short. But certainly we could look in the Scripture and find description after description of what those things are that lay wait for us. But notice the characteristics he describes. You know, in a world where everything seems corruptible, you know, when we look around, I mean, you can't you can't buy a car that lasts ten years anymore. Somebody say amen to that. You know, every house that you buy, it's lopsided now, it seems. And uh, you buy a suit of clothes, and it seems like they rot off and rust off before you've even got to wear them three times. We live in a corruptible world, but the promises of God, the things He has promised us, are incorruptible. Not only are they incorruptible, but they're undefiled. Uh, you remember when the housing market. Uh, tanked, and well, the whole economy tanked, and there was a lot of folks had their money in that, and all of a sudden, overnight, gone. All of a sudden, you know, for all your life, you, you always heard, put your money in a 401k, it's safe, it's safe, it's safe. And all of a sudden, overnight, 401k isn't, isn't safe anymore, and all of a sudden, the machines hum, and the computers figure, and the numbers crunch, and somehow, we get left out in the rain, and that inheritance that you had laid up for your kids all of a sudden became defiled. But it's good to know, my friend, that no matter what happens, doesn't matter how bad the economy gets, doesn't matter what trade deals come in, doesn't matter what president we get, no matter what, the promises of heaven are undefiled. They fade not away. You know, after all, everything we've got is eventually going to go at some point. Doesn't matter what it is. We just bought a house, you know, a few months ago, and, and it's a beautiful home. It's a brick home. I like, I like having a brick home. You can feel the difference when you walk through it versus a, a stick and siding home. And, uh, no doubt that house, if the Lord tarries his coming, will be here long after I am gone. But time will eventually eat away at it. The elements will eventually crumble it away. But the things that God has promised us, he's promised us treasures that have been laid up in a place where moth does not corrupt and rust does not corrupt and thief doesn't break through and steal. All of these things are promised to us, a triumphant 
entrance into glory. Reservations have been made for us. Look at the next verse. It says, reserved in heaven for you. Uh, As soon as you were born again, God made these reservations for you. I like the idea of reservations. You know why? Because it carries the idea of something that's been planned ahead, laid ahead, that there's a guarantee behind. I mean, restaurants don't even give you reservations anymore. Uh, you, I mean, you really have to go to a high-dollar restaurant for them to give you reservations. Do you ever call down to any of these restaurants like poor folks like me and you can afford to eat at and ask them about reservations? They'll laugh at you. You call down to Cracker Barrel say, I've got, you know, 42 people coming. Do I need a reservation? They'll go, <laughs> 42 people? You need a prayer. Amen. You don't need a reservation. You need to own a Cracker Barrel. <laughs> It don't do no good to make reservations, it seems, but the Lord's reservations, they never fall through. And these things are reserved in heaven for us. We have an expectant hope, but we have an experiential faith. Look at the next few verses. He says this, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. I think that word kept is interesting. same word Paul uses when he talks about uh, the uh, governor of Damascus had kept a garrison, had kept the city with a garrison trying to catch him so he could not leave. And it has the idea of vigilance and guarding and standing uh, watch over something. Let me tell you something, man. I am encouraged to know this, that my salvation is not kept in my hands. It's kept in God's hands. When I accepted Christ, and, and here's the problem. You understand that that... We're saved by grace through faith. You understand that? By grace through faith. Faith is our means of accessing, of getting to God. But we're not saved by faith. We're saved by grace through faith. Once we've been saved, it's no longer in our hands. Uh, God has made a promise. We have accepted that promise, taken him up on that promise. We have called upon the name of the Lord. And now our salvation rests solely in his hands. I can no more lose my salvation than I could earn my salvation. It is holy of grace. He says this about this experiential faith that we have. He says that it sees beyond the temporal side of life. We are kept by the power of God. No matter what is going on around us, we are placed in God's blessed hands. You know, you'll hear somebody, sometimes people that will try to tell you you can lose your salvation. And, uh, you know, I've heard people say this, you know, well, what if I want to take him out, uh, take myself out of his hands? You know, the Bible says no man shall pluck them out of the Father's hands in John chapter 10. I've heard people say, well, you know, the, you know, what if I want to take myself out of God's hands? Well, have you ever read what the prophet Isaiah said when he said that he measured out the universe in the span of his hand? I did the math one time, but it's more numbers than I can afford, so I... I quit mentioning it, but suffice it to say that if you're going to take yourself out of God's hands, you better get running because his hand is so big that when he flung the universe out into space, he stretched that divine hand out, looked at it, and said, yep, that's about right. (laughs) You better get started. We are kept by that hand. And so whatever we're struggling with or grappling with, we must always keep that in mind, that God has control of us. Not only do we see that it sees beyond the temporal side of life, but look at verse number 6. It soars beyond the temptation side of life. He says, wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, you're in heaviness through manifold temptations. You know what he's basically saying? He's saying, you may be going through some rough times. No doubt you are. But it does not change the joy of the Lord that is the product of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and the promises of God that have been wrought in you through his salvation. 
This faith that you have, this faith that, that we hold so dear, that we treasure this salvation that has been purchased to us by the blood of Christ, it gives us reason to shout and to rejoice and to be happy and to have excitement regardless of what we're going through. He doesn't ask them to ignore their problems. He just also acknowledges that they should not ignore God's goodness and blessings on them either. you got problems. I'm sure you do. I've got problems. Everybody's got problems. Your problems may be way worse than my problems. Let me tell you something. Just because problems show up, that doesn't mean God went away. Just because things get tough, that doesn't mean God's not in control. And listen, just because your immediate may be in turmoil, that doesn't change the fact that your eternity has been settled through the blood of Jesus Christ. We see in this passage that it soars beyond the temptation side of life, but it sings uh, beyond the testing side of life. Look at verse number 7. That the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold, that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found, I like this, under the praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. There are several great truths contained there that I do not have time to deal with all of them. Uh, but I think there's a few things that are of note that we should notice. Number one, I want you to notice that he speaks of the trial of their faith being much more precious than of gold. In other words, what God was doing through their persecution was something that was of, of vastly more value than he could ever do through their prosperity. I don't believe it's a sin to have money. Uh, so, sometimes, you know, I, I feel like everybody else feels that way. Somebody say, no, I, you know, I don't feel like it's a sin to have money. I think if God blesses you with it, that's wonderful. Uh, I hope he blesses me with more of it. Amen? But uh, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But I understand this. There's some things we cannot learn but through persecution. There's some things that aren't going to be learned except through the trial of your faith. And oftentimes in those dark and difficult times, we have a tendency to get down in the mouth and to lament, but we need to recognize that God is doing something in our life that is is of vastly greater value than he could ever do through our comfort and pleasure and prosperity. He says this, though it be tried with fire, speaking of spiritual fire, in other words, implying this, that God is purging us of the dross of our lives. Just as the refiner would heat that gold up until it would melt so that the dross would raised to the top and he could reach down and with an, a tool, an instrument, scoop out all of the dross and that gold would be the purer for it. So God, through our trials, through our difficulties, is trying to draw things out of our life that he may not be able to get out of there any other way. You know, a lot of times when we start to go through hard times, there's just a lot of, a lot of nonsense that just isn't important to us anymore. Some of you all are reaching an age where a lot of the stuff that used to matter to you don't matter to you anymore. Some of you, when you were a young person, you may have thought, man, a big car, a nice boat, or all the latest toys, or whatever it might have been, man, that was what life was about. But now as you come closer to the end of the road than to the beginning of the road, you look and you see what folly it is to get mixed up or to get obsessed. We might say it that way, preoccupied with those things. Not wrong to have those things, but certainly the spiritual side of life is far greater than the temporal. And you're beginning to see that God is doing greater things in your life spiritually than having a nice boat or a nice set of clothes or a big house, whatever it might have been, was. He speaks of the trial of their faith might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Let me tell you something. You may not understand all of it now, but one day when Jesus comes, you'll understand all of it. You may right now, Paul said this, that uh, our light affliction, boy, <laughs> light affliction, this is a man that had been shipwrecked. This is a man that had been beaten. This is a man that had been stoned and left for dead outside of Lystra. This is a man that had been uh, thrown in prison. This was a man that would finally meet his death at the hand of Nero. And he says, our light affliction. Our light affliction. 
You know why it's a lot of affliction? Because he says, which endureth but for a moment. But from worketh for us a far more exceeding weight of glory. Heaven always pays good dividends. And whatever you go through right now, it's not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in you. He speaks of their expectant hope and their experiential faith. But look at verse number 8. He describes an expressive love that they have. And I must hasten. I must hurry. But he says this, whom having not seen. Now, who's he talking about? Well, he just said the appearing of Jesus Christ. He says, whom having not seen, you love. In whom, though now you see him not, yet believing you rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. Let me tell you a few reasons that encourages me. One, because the man writing this had seen the Lord. But he acknowledges that even having not seen the Lord, that through the love of God being shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, as Paul said, that we could have the capacity to love him in the way that Peter had, and really in a greater way than Peter had. In the same way that Christ spoke of the blessedness of those that would believe having not seen, certainly I believe those that can love Christ without having seen him, certainly that is a more blessed love because it is a love birthed out of faith as opposed to feeling or as opposed to fidelity. And he describes that love to us and what it means. Notice what our love dares. It dares to love someone we've never seen, never held, never spoken to in an audible sense or heard speak to us audibly. But by the faith of the, uh, the by faith operating through the word of God, we can grow to love him. Uh, you know, when I describe growing to love Christ, we have a lot of platitudes that we sort of operate under. You know, every Christian loves Christ, right? I mean, that's what we all imply. But certainly our love is born out through our obedience. Christ said, if you love me, keep my commandments. It's all good and well to say you love Christ, but if you're not living for him, then you really don't love him, at least not in a substantial or substantiated way. But those that are experiencing the intense persecution that they are experiencing, it has knit their hearts together with a Savior that suffered in their place, and they're growing to love him even more. I want you to notice what their love dares, but I want you to notice what their love does. The next phrase he says is, Whom having not seen ye love, in whom though now ye see him not. Now that's all of us in this day of grace. We don't see him. I'm aware of that. Yet believing. We'll never learn to rejoice until we learn to believe. Our joy and our rejoicing is deeply connected to our faith. If we spend all of our time away from the Word of God and the things of God and the house of God and the preaching of God and the, and the prayer closet with God, we ought not wonder why we lose our joy. You see, those things are the result in whom, whom having not seen, you, you rejoice. Believing, yet believing, you rejoice. Because we believe that He is who He says He is. Because we know that He keeps His promises and that what He's doing in our life, though we may not understand it, we know that it's for our good. And so because of that, no matter what it is, we can rejoice knowing that a God that loved us enough to send His Son to die for us would not cast us aside. We believe in Him, we trust Him, and because of that we rejoice how? With joy, unspeakable, and full of glory. Now, there's a lot I want to say about that, a lot I want to say in rebuking dead worship, because when I read full of glory, I read full of glory. And it does not say that his appearing would be with glory. His It will be. I'm not saying it won't be. It will be. Certainly, uh, the trial of our faith will be found unto praise and honor and glory at his appearing. But here it is describing our rejoicing 
that is full of glory. Old timers used to call it getting in the glory. You ever heard somebody say that? To get beside themselves. You say, what's that like? Well, I don't know. I know that when uh, the Shekinah glory of God set down in Solomon's temple, it was so that the priests could not minister. You say, what did they do? They just started playing their instruments and shouting it out because they couldn't get close enough to do the work of the temple and they couldn't minister. But Paul said this. He said, if we be beside ourselves, it is for your sake. Isn't it funny how we can hear something over and over again that means one thing to us, but then all of a sudden we make it mean something different in Scripture? You ever seen somebody worshiping? You thought to yourself, boy, they're just beside themselves. Paul said, if we be beside ourselves, it is for your sake. I'm not talking about wildfire. I'm not talking about anything in the flesh. But I don't believe it's in the flesh to praise and glorify God. I think if we really believe, we'll rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Christians ought to be the happiest people walking on planet Earth. And and people ought to be able to tell. Amen? We see an undying bliss in the next few verses. I've got to hurry on. I wish I... That's what happens. I get all this and I ain't got time to teach it. I want you to notice what he says about Scripture. Look at verse number 9. He speaks basically three things about the Scripture in this particular portion. He describes its message in verse number 9, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your soul. Now, there are a lot of things we could say about it, but let's just limit it to this, that he describes the message of the Word of God to basically be, you understand when he says faith, he's speaking about the system of faith built around the Word of God, right? Uh, For instance, when we talk about contending for the faith once delivered to the saints, what well, that's speaking about is the system of belief, uh, of, of revelation from the Word of God, and our uh, practicing of it, our embracing of it, and the impact it has in our lives. He says, receiving the end of your faith, the end of the Christian faith. What is it? What is this system of the belief? What is God trying to accomplish in humanity? Even the salvation of your souls. That's the message of the Word of God. The message of the Word of God is not reformation, it's redemption. It, it's... <laughs> Somebody was with me, amen. I paid him to do that though. But, uh, it's not, it's not reformation, it's redemption. It's not, listen, it's not social justice, it's salvation. It's not changing a person's circumstances so that they can change on the inside, it's changing a person on the inside so that their circumstances don't matter anymore. It's salvation, that's what the thrust and theme of it. Note its message, but look at the next two verses, note its mystery. He describes what the prophets pursued in verse number 10. He said, of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you. You know, the Old Testament prophets, I've heard people say there's no grace in the Old Testament. And uh, there's two. There's one big problem with that. It, it's not true. <laughs> it's not true. Um, you know, Adam and Eve, they tried to sow fig leaves for themselves. And the Lord said, take that. Take that nonsense off. That won't do any good. By the way, the only thing, I mentioned this from the pulpit yesterday, the only thing the Lord ever cursed was a fig tree. That ought to tell us something about how God feels about our attempts at self-righteousness. He said, take that nonsense off. I've got coats of skins that I've made for you. He didn't say go out in the field and make some coats of skins for yourselves. He said, I've already got them made, and all we have to do is robe you in them. I'd say that's grace. We find that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. We found that it was grace that brought uh, Ruth out of the field and into Boaz's, uh, into his house and at his feet. We find that Abraham found grace. Abraham didn't go looking for God. God came looking for Abraham. 
Uh, Abraham found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Certainly David found grace in the eyes of the Lord because he said, Blessed is the man to whom the Lord imputeth not sin. Grace is not a, 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 an exclusive thing of the New Testament. Grace is found all the way through the Old Testament. People say, well, folks were saved by the law. No, they're never saved by the law because by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. It, it was never. The, the law was given for, uh, for transgressions until the seed should come. Salvation has always been by grace through faith. You'll find it all the way through the Word of God. The prophets prophesied of this day of grace. And by the way, when it talks about grace and the times, as it denotes later on, when it talks about searching what or what manner of time that has the idea of an age or of a dispensation of a period of time, they prophesied about these things, but I don't believe they always understood them. I don't believe they always knew everything. I mean, there were things that David uh, in the book of Psalms wrote that did not correlate to any period of time in his life. No doubt he wondered about those things. But Peter's going to show us that though they pursued those things, they did not necessarily understand them. We see what they pursued, but what they proclaimed, uh, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you. They were ministering to us. In fact, he uh, says uh, later on in verse 12, on whom it was revealed that not unto themselves, but unto us they did minister the things. So many things in the Old Testament. Uh, you know, I, I'm a dispensationalist. Let me say that again for you. I'm a dispensationalist. That means that I believe God has uh, communicated and operated with mankind in different ways throughout human history. Uh, I believe that there was a dispensation of, of innocence. I believe there was dispensation of the patriarchs. I believe uh, so on and so forth we could go. Certainly there was a dispensation of the law. Uh, and now in this day that we live in, the dispensation of grace is enacted. does not mean that grace did not exist, but it, it, what it does mean is that grace is now the only means through which God communicates and, and, and deals with mankind. Grace is the only means. There is not the uh, beggarly elements of the world, the rudiments of the world of the Old Testament law standing in between us and our relationship with God. And as a dispensationalist, I believe that every portion of the Word of God is written for us, but not every portion of the Word of God is written to us. And as you go through the Old Testament, there are many portions of the Word of God that no doubt bore a more practical relevance in the day they were written than they do in our day of grace. does not mean that they are not written for our example. They are. But certainly, especially the Minor Prophets, we did the Minor Prophets a couple of courses ago, certainly they dealt heavily with the nation of Israel. I believe there's much of the Bible that's going to be of much more practical import during the Millennial Kingdom. Uh, as a dispensationalist, I believe that the Pauline epistles have the, probably the most relevant practical truth to our everyday experience. Don't misunderstand me. All the Word of God is, is for us, but not all of it is to us. And much of what the Old Testament prophets wrote had, had distinct and, and very definite uh, practical connotations for the Israelites and the, the peoples that were around them. But much of the things they wrote as well were not necessarily dealing distinctly with their dispensation, but they looked forward into the day of grace that we live in. They describe a few things there. I'm not going to take time to deal with all of them, but he does say this in verse number 11. He speaks about the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. Uh, both of these are recurring themes in the Old Testament prophets, the suffering of Christ and the glory that should follow. It was even said among some of the Old Testament commentators, the rabbinical teachers, that they wondered if there would be two Christs, because on one hand they see him as a lamb uh, led to the slaughter, and then on the other hand they see him as the king of kings coming to conquer, and they could not reconcile those two things. What they didn't understand is that there were not uh, two Christs, but there were two comings. When he came the first time, he came as a lamb led to the slaughter. When he comes the next time, he's coming as the king conquering 
and to set up a millennial kingdom. He speaks of his majesty in verse, the majesty of the word of God in verse number 12, unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves but unto us they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven, which things the angels desire to look into. 